So today we continue to walk with our Lord through his earliest days of his earthly ministry. We celebrate the feast of the presentation. It is the story of Jesus' parents bringing him to the temple to fulfill the Jewish ceremonial laws. And we see the faithful remnant of Israel in Jerusalem rejoice at his coming. So let us pray for eyes to see him clearly in his word. Heavenly Father, open our eyes and ears to the wonders of your word as we hear it this morning. As Simeon and Anna welcome the infant Jesus, help us to welcome our resurrected king as he comes to us in this, his word, and at his table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A son has been born to Mary and Joseph. He's their firstborn son, as Luke makes a point of saying. He is miraculously born, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin. As we now perceive, he is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. But he is also God in human flesh, God incarnate. And being born in human flesh, being born in Hebrew human flesh, he is born under the law of the Hebrews. Faithful Joseph and Mary knew what the law required when a son was born. We see it referenced in our passage, and we heard it read for us in our Old Testament reading. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Every firstborn son belongs to the Lord. He claims them as his own, and that means every firstborn son must be redeemed, must be bought back from the Lord by sacrifice. As our Old Testament reading indicated, this goes back to the book of Exodus. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and God was coming to bring judgment for sin on Egypt by the hand of his destroyer. He would even claim the sons of his chosen people, Israel, who were then enslaved in Egypt. But the Lord is merciful and compassionate, and he provided his people a way to escape this judgment. He provided a way for the sons of Israel to be bought back, to be redeemed. He told each household to slay a lamb in place of their son. And he told them to display the blood of this substitute on the lintel and the doorposts of their house so that when the destroyer swept through the city, he would see the blood and he would pass over their sons. He would not kill the son of the house because the son of the flock had already died in their place. They had been redeemed. And so now, a thousand years later, Joseph and Mary now take their firstborn son to the temple to fulfill this law. And it wouldn't be anything that extraordinary if it were not for who this son is. They come to Jerusalem to redeem their son by the sacrifice of a substitute in his place. They do not know that one day their son will come to Jerusalem to redeem all humanity by the sacrifice of himself as our substitute. The son whom Mary and Joseph now redeem will one day redeem Mary and Joseph, along with all those who trust in him. The redemption of the firstborn son is not the only law that must be fulfilled by Mary and Joseph. 
According to the law, an Israelite woman who has given birth to a son is ceremonially unclean for 40 days. It doesn't mean that she's done something sinful or wrong. Children are a gift from the Lord. It has to do with the shedding of blood that results. As Jesus later says, it is what comes out of a person that defiles him. And this is the case for many of the issues that we see in the law. It would be interesting to talk more about the symbolism behind these ceremonies, but we'll do that another time. Luke's point here is to show that Joseph and Mary are being faithful. They are being faithful to God's law, following what he requires. Mary desires to be cleansed because she cannot worship with God's people until she is. She is a devoted follower of Yahweh. Now, according to the law, after 40 days, a new mother is to bring an offering to the temple. And it was supposed to be a lamb, a year old, a son of the flock to replace the son of the household. And it was to be burned as an ascension offering or a whole burnt offering. It was supposed to be accompanied by a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. But if the woman could not afford a lamb, she was to bring a second dove to serve as that ascension offering. And the latter is what Mary brings. She brings two doves, as you see in the text. So this is significant. It tells us something. It shows us that the Son of God not only became man, he became a poor man. God the Father has always been concerned for the poor, and it is to the poor that he gave his richest gift his beloved son. Mary could not afford to bring a lamb, but as I have already said, we know that she did bring a lamb to the temple that day, didn't she? This child wrapped in her arms, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here at the beginning of the gospel, a dove is offered in Jesus' place. At the end of this gospel, when Jesus returns to this temple for the last time, no dove will die in his place. Instead, he will be the substitute for us. He will die in our place. Also, note that Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus come to the temple in Jerusalem to do all this, and thus the true and living temple comes to the temple made of stone. The heavenly reality comes to the earthly shadow. Because in himself, even the infant Jesus is the dwelling place of God and man. And this account picks up on a common theme of the Old Testament, the presence of the Lord coming to dwell in the house of the Lord. The presence of the Lord led Israel out of Egypt in a cloud and fiery pillar. And this glory cloud then landed on Mount Sinai, and from Mount Sinai it descended onto the tabernacle that Moses built. Later, the fiery presence of the Lord came swiftly into the stone temple once Solomon had completed it. And the glory of God departed from that temple in Ezekiel's vision before God allowed Israel to be taken into captivity. These Comings and goings are always wondrous sights, and they're accompanied by fire and lightning and rushing wind and thunderous noises. They are epiphanies of God's presence, and they came, uh, they caused the people to fear and to tremble when they saw them. There is no doubt there that the Lord had come to dwell in his house. 
but this time it's very different, isn't it? Here, the glory of God is not wrapped in smoke and thick darkness, but in swaddling clothes. The glory of God comes not with thunder, but with the pitiful cries of a baby. It's no great spectacle, and probably hardly anyone noticed. Only those who were prepared, only those who had been given eyes to see this wondrous thing that God was doing. And we meet two such people in the temple that day, Simeon and Anna. Why two? The scriptures say the truth must always be established by two witnesses. And so Simeon is the first. Luke says, This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, Simeon is like many Jews of his day. They had a history. God had redeemed them from Egypt and brought them to this land. He had given them glory under Kings David and Solomon. But then bad shepherds had taken over. They had oppressed God's flock. They had led them astray. We saw generations of wicked kings, corrupt priests, and false prophets in our study of kings in Jeremiah this year. And we just preached on the exile of God's people and the fall of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple. In the intervening years, the exiles returned and rebuilt the temple, only to have it desecrated once again by the Syrians. The temple of Jesus' day, this temple that he comes to now, was built by an imposter, King Herod, no son of David, a puppet of Roman power, certainly not the wise and righteous king the prophets had foretold. But the faithful in Jerusalem knew that Yahweh had promised to one day set all of this right. Through Isaiah, he had promised, Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort, comfort, God promised. It's the same word translated consolation in our passage. Simeon was waiting for this consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the comfort, comfort that God had promised after all the centuries of oppression and exile and desolation. And Simeon knew what the prophets had foretold, that this comfort would come in the form of a person, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, the branch from David's family tree, the root of Jesse, a king who would rule with wisdom, a king who would rule with justice and righteousness, perhaps even a suffering servant who would take away the iniquity of God's people and redeem them. That was the consolation that Simeon had been waiting his whole life for. And the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die before he had seen this consolation, before he had seen the Lord's Christ with his own eyes. Verse 27, 
And Simeon came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, or actually sang, but we'll get to that in a moment. Notice first that it is the spirit who gives Simeon the ability to recognize this baby as the Messiah, as the Christ. He's not the only person that saw Jesus that day. The temple would have been crowded. But he, along with Anna, are the only ones that really saw Jesus that day. Saw that this was God's promised consolation. So knowledge of Christ is a gift of the Spirit, not of the flesh. And this will be the way it always is with Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke, just as it is today. The Spirit must open our eyes if we are to see Jesus for who he really is. God's anointed king. But now, finally seeing the Messiah, the one he and all his people had longed for, how does Simeon respond? He responds the way we all respond. When we are overjoyed, he bursts into song. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. What word is he talking about? What departure is he referring to? The word is the revelation he had earlier received from the Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. The departure, then, is his own death. Simeon is singing about his own death. What kind of fool would rejoice over his impending demise? Only one who is foolish in the eyes of the world, but wise in the eyes of God. Only one who knows his death is not the end, but the beginning of something else. And what is this something else? He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Why does he sing in the face of death? Because the Messiah has come. Simeon knows that means comfort and consolation. That means peace, shalom. That means salvation. That means light for the world. That means glory for Israel. Simeon is able to sing with joy about his own demise because he knows he's part of a bigger story. And it's nothing less than the salvation of the entire world. The resurrection and restoration of all things. The coming of the Lord to end suffering and sadness and set all things right again. And Jesus is the sign for Simeon that God is going to do all of this. Maybe not in his lifetime, but God is going to accomplish what he has promised. And so the Christ child moves him to song, and it has come to be known as the Song of Simeon. Now, historically, the Christian church has sung this song every Sunday at the end of the service, though most modern congregations have abandoned that practice. But historically, Christians took Simeon's song as their own each week, having themselves seen the Christ. Where did they see him? In his word at his table, in the fellowship of his body. Having seen the Christ, every Christian would depart 
from the service, singing that they too were now ready to die in peace. Because God's consolation had come to them just as it had to Simeon. Now we don't know how long it was before Simeon actually died. It, it may have been soon after this. It may have been some years later. But we know he died with hope having seen the Lord Jesus, having seen the Savior of the world. Luke tells us that Joseph and Mary are awed by Simeon's knowledge and his witness. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but here was confirmation for them that God was indeed at work. Verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon not only sings, he prophesies. And he gives us a preview of what we're going to see in the rest of Luke's gospel this year. Jesus will bring about the fall and rise of many in Israel, and that means he's going to shake things up. He's going to turn things on their head. He will exalt the humble and humble the exalted. And this image of a piercing sword, it's a bit confusing at first. What's he talking about? But the way he describes it, it's consistent with the way the Bible describes God's word. It is sharp like a sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus is the eternal word, and in that way, he is the sword. He will speak the word of God during his earthly ministry, and it will indeed be a piercing sword, a piercing word, revealing the true heart of those who hear it. His word will cause some to be lifted up, and it will cause others to stumble. His word works the same today. And Simeon directs this prophecy especially to Mary. She will be pierced by the words of Jesus. And that's what we see in the gospel. Even Mary has to wrestle with some of the difficult things that Jesus says and does. She has to wrestle with the difficult words and the confounding ministry he carries out. And she will have to witness the crucifixion of her beloved son. Joseph apparently dies before Jesus begins his ministry, but Simeon knows that Mary will bear witness to all of it. And these words are to help prepare her for what God will do in and through her son. So ends the testimony of the first witness, Simeon, the man who sings in the face of death. But there is a second witness, verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. Luke wants us to recall the words of the prophet Joel here. Joel had said that when God came to comfort and console Israel, certain signs would accompany that day. Joel 2.28, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Because, think about it, we don't often think of an 84-year-old woman primarily as a daughter, do we? 
Luke is going out of his way to point out that Anna is both a prophetess and a daughter. And he does this to show that the prophecy of Joel is being fulfilled. That means the Lord has come to comfort his people, just as Joel foretold. Luke goes on. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Like Simeon, Anna is one of the faithful remnant within Israel. She lives a life devoted to worship and to prayer. What's she praying for? She's praying for what every faithful Jew was praying for, the coming of the Messiah, the consolation of her people. Verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Just as he did with Simeon, the Lord grants Anna eyes to see who this baby really is. This helpless babe is the great Messiah that we've been waiting for. This baby whom Joseph and Mary have come to Jerusalem to redeem will one day bring redemption to Jerusalem. That's what Anna sings. Jesus is the answer to 70 years of praying. Could you and I continue to pray this faithfully if we had to wait that long for the answer? This is what Anna does. There's something else I'd like us to see here. In this scene, we have Simeon and Anna at the temple. And we, we've talked many times about how the temple is a symbolic Garden of Eden. Now, Simeon and Anna are not married, but they stand in for Adam and Eve. We have the man and the woman at the garden. And at creation, Adam was to hear God's word and then sing it to his wife. And then Eve would add her voice in response, beautifying and glorifying that word of God. Bridegroom and bride, call and response, two witnesses to the glory of God. It's the same garden pattern typified in our liturgy as the pastor representing Christ, the husband, speaks what God has spoken. And then the congregation, who is the bride of Christ, glorifies it with their voice in call and response. A double witness, a harmonious praise is lifted up to the Father. That's what happens when the Messiah comes to the temple. This discord between sinful man and woman is turned to harmony. The curse is undone. The garden is brought back to life. Adam and Eve are redeemed. Humanity is restored to its glorious design. All in fulfillment of God's word. The passage closes, verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, at first, we might not really understand why Luke takes the time to tell us about these old covenant rituals like he does here in these first chapters of his gospel. He tells us about Jesus' circumcision. He tells us about the purification of Jesus and Mary at the temple. It certainly seems weird for the church to devote holy days to these ceremonies, which we no longer have to practice. 
Why do we celebrate the presentation? Why do we celebrate the circumcision of Jesus? Let's be honest, it's kind of strange talking about this stuff, right? Circumcision and issues of blood. Why should Christians have a feast day to such things? What did our epistle reading say? Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The Apostle Paul tells us Jesus had to have a birth just like everyone else, blood and all. He had to be born under the requirements of the law, just like everyone else. That's why the church celebrates all the ways that Jesus took on our humanity, even down to these seemingly simple and ordinary rituals of the law, rituals that every faithful Israelite would have performed. Jesus had to be a real human being because he was coming to redeem real human beings. It had to be human flesh that died on the cross. It had to be human flesh that was raised from the grave. It had to be human flesh that ascended into heaven. It had to be a true human being that was seated on the heavenly throne, taking charge of the world God made to be ruled by human beings. If the Son of God is not a human like us, then humans like us cannot be sons of God. Today's Collect Prayer is one of my favorites, and it hits the nail right on the head. It says, O God, our Maker and Redeemer, you wonderfully created us, and in the incarnation of your Son, yet more wondrously restored our human nature. Grant that we may ever be alive in him who made himself to be like us. That's a prayer worthy of meditating upon. Jesus had to be real human being in order to redeem real human beings. And that includes being born under the law. Now, we do not yet see our own human flesh resurrected and restored as Jesus's is now. We still live in a fallen world. We still war against sin and death. But Christ has come. He has gone before us. He has already passed through death. He has already been resurrected. His flesh has already been restored and glorified. His eternal reign has already begun. The firstborn son is the first fruits of a new creation. He is the sign of things to come. And he has been presented to us in his word, in his sacraments, in the fellowship of his body. So, like Simeon and Anna, we have seen the Christ. And therefore, like Simeon and Anna, we can know peace, shalom, true human flourishing. And like Simeon and Anna, we can bear witness to the Christ we have seen, telling others about the one we have seen, and the death-defying hope that he brings. Let us pray. Almighty God, your Son, Jesus Christ, was presented in the temple 
and acclaim the Redeemer of Israel and the light of the nations. Grant that in him we may be presented to you as holy, and that we may reflect his glory to the world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.